Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. He won the Australian Open twice. He won the French Open twice. And he's our first guest who got to number one in the world. As a junior, he came up with Agassi, Sampras, and Chang. And as pros, they formed a flashpoint of American men's tennis that dominated for well over a decade. Since hanging up his racket, he's been all over the tennis world, captaining the American Davis Cup team for eight years, broadcasting and commentating for Australian and American TV, and through his company, Inside Out Sports and Entertainment, running the highly successful Invesco series. Known for his grit, determination, and baseball stripes, Jim Courier is going to offer us his sharp insight on what's happening on the tour today. He's going to tell us what it's like to dominate tennis at the age of 21 and let us know his biggest regret as Davis Cup captain. We met up with Jim during the New York Open in his private locker room in the basement of the Nassau Coliseum as he was gearing up for a tennis match and cooking challenge with Andy Roddick. We're here, the New York Open, uh, which was which was the Memphis tournament. Did you ever win that? You had to win I did. Memphis. I did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, gentlemen, you here is uh, Jim Courier, James Spencer Courier. My man, it's so good to see you. Likewise. Um, so, um, no longer jet lagged. Well, we're what are we now? We're uh, almost two weeks since. Uh, we arrived back from Australia, so the jet lag was severe. It always is. But they say it's one day for every hour. Right. It's like going east eight hours from Australia. It's a 16-hour time change, but it's the equivalent of going east eight. So it's hard. And I, I was waking up at 11 a lot of days, which is challenging when you got a two and a four-year-old. So um, uh, it was tough. Your but kids are I'm, young. I'm huh? back and Damn. I'm feeling great and I'm ready to play some ball tonight here. All right. Against Andy Roddick. <laughs> uh, Jim, Jim's going to battle against Andy Roddick shortly. Um, New York. Open is now being played at the Nassau Coliseum where uh, the New York Islanders won a bunch of championships. This is where we are. I, I can only imagine that at some time, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page must have been in this room. I mean, this is like the basement of the Nassau Coliseum. Yeah, they've refurbished it probably since <laughs> since Zepp came through here in the 70s and 80s. But, I mean, uh, but this has to have been like oh, yeah. the room where the bands must have gotten ready. I'm yeah. thinking. So somehow we've finagled our way in here. So, man, we do a five-set format. You are a four-time major winner. You are certainly used to five sets. Okay. This is our first set. We talk about what you have been up to. Uh, We call it the the off-the-court report. Are you ready? Let's fire it up. First set. Great. So, first of all, let's talk Australia. Um, How was your trip? So, Australia is always a treat. You've been there. You know, it's a great way to start your year. Everyone's in a good mood. It's a great place. The daylight is long. It's, It's convenient. New network this year for the first time. I worked 14 years for Channel 7, and then Channel 9 took over the rights this year, and they were good enough to have me on. Australian Open broadcast, is like, is that your first hustle? Is that your first broadcast? No. Wimbledon was my first hustle. 2000, I went to work for TNT with Marv Albert. That was a real treat. I mean, I literally got my first play-by-play <laughs> person that I worked with was the great Marv Albert. So That's that was good. amazing. But uh, I've been with Channel 7 for a long time and now with Channel 9, and, and they're, they're a great bunch of people to work with. And then, you know, not long before that, you stopped being Davis Cup captain. Yeah. Um, you know, you were always pretty 
forward thinking about what that format should be. And then when the format changed, you shut it down. Um, any good reason that we don't know about? I, I was not swayed by the format change. I'd made the decision in 2017 that 2018 would be my last season as the captain. And it was not clear that the vote from the ITF was going to pass, that there would be a, a change in format, which I'm a fan of. I'm, I'm much in, very much in favor of Davis Cup moving into the 21st century and becoming more fan-friendly and more palatable for people to follow from start to finish. Um, I'm sure we can get into that later as far as, you know, things that, that they may need to change in the future to, to make it perfect. But um, we can't let perfect be the enemy of, of, uh, of good. And I think it is a good change in the end for Davis Cup. But for me, eight years was a good long run as a captain. I'd made the decision a- after my seventh year that, that one more year I'd give it a go with the guys, but that it was time for a new voice and a, and a change in leadership. And as it turns out, it's the perfect time with this new format coming in for fresh leadership. So the timing actually worked well. The USTA were incredibly gracious, and, and I had a great time working with them. And was it a good experience for you? It was. It was, a, it was frustrating, for sure, not to be able to do as well as I think we were capable of. And, you know, there were various reasons for that early on. Um, certainly, I, I think there were th- some things that I could have done better when I was a young and experienced captain and, and made things more favorable condition-wise for our team. Uh, we didn't get the speed of court right the first time we played a home match which I'm responsible for ultimately. And, and you know, what I had asked for was not delivered. And, and ultimately that cost us against Spain and Austin. And later on in, in my career, we would have things happen like happened in the semifinals where John Isner and his wife were expecting a baby and he was playing well, but he was unavailable. And Jack Sock was supposedly injured after he won the US Open doubles and was unavailable. And, so we lost two of our best players for the semifinals, and we, we played and fought gamely and nearly scored a real big upset over Croatia. But there are things like that that are out of your control as a captain. So I love the challenge. I really like spending time with the guys and trying to help them. And uh, I have a lot of great memories from it, and yeah. I have a lot, of, a lot of frustrating memories from it yeah. as well because I'm like, a competitor. It's, it's like Larry Bird coaching the, like the Pacers, man. Jim's the former world number one, dealing with guys that never touched his level. No, I, our guys fought hard. Our guys, you know, for me, what I'm all about is is just maximize what you have. That's the thing that I I think has been a touchstone of my career is trying to get everything out of myself, and I wanted our team to do the same, and that wasn't always the case. Yeah, um, you've cut a broad swath in tennis. You're low key with no social media. But, you know, you've got business interests with your Invesco series, your Davis Cup captain, you know, your, your broadcaster. How have you been able to keep your independence? You know, we don't hear a lot from you uh, on the off weeks. <laughs> right. Well, that's intentional. Um, you know, I dabbled in social media very, in the very early days of Twitter. Randy Walker, was, who was a, a great friend and a, and a great PR man, was, was helping us and has continued to help us at Inside Out with our publicity for our champions business, you know, which at that point was the Outback Champions Series. Now it's the Invesco Series. And he set up a Twitter account for me and at, ha, asked me to start tweeting. And I didn't know much about it, so I started doing it. And I quickly realized that it was a time suck and it was a really poor use of my time. Um, and I shut it down pretty quickly and have never been an outboarding social media person. Now, I do follow people on social media that I need to to, to get news fed to me within the sport. 
So I am a voyeur on social media, but on, on weeks off, I, I like to have my weeks off and not have to be responding or responsive to things. And also, look, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that if you do have a voice in the sport, it's important to, to be quiet sometimes. So when you do say something that, that it actually has some sort of resonance as opposed to a constant drone. So I think um, I, I've been very specific about how I approach my availability in media and, and how I you know, work within television. I don't overwork. I, I work specific weeks and I love it. It's a real privilege and I don't take it for granted. I love um, being able to be at these big tournaments and to be a part of, of the tennis scene and, and try and uh, try and put some color to what people and context to what people are seeing so they can understand how it fits in the whole big spectrum of tennis. But I've been lucky, you know, I mean, because I was, I worked hard and I had good results in tennis, a lot of doors have opened for me and I've continued to work hard since I retired from the ATP tour. It's been a lot of elbow grease and continues to be to, to build that business and to keep it sustaining. The, the Champions Tour is by no means a, a business that can just run by itself. You have to put the time and energy in and, and Inside Out is a great team led by John Benison and Zach Gowan and I've worked with them for a long time. And I love that piece of the business. I still like playing. And I like just being involved in something that I'm passionate about, and one, uh, I'm lucky. And one of the things that I think you guys have done at with the Champions Tour is you're, you're, you're like kissing dates during other tournaments. Mm -hmm. We have a nice balance on it. We have 10 dates a year on the Invesco series. They're one-night dates for people who aren't familiar with them, where we, we have four players who play two one-set semifinals and a one-set final. So it's three sets of tennis with four names that you'll know, players that have done something significant in the sport. And we, we still have independent events where we show up and we set up in a building like this and we play. And then we also attach ourselves with um, current ATP and WTA events and, and challenger events that where the infrastructure is there and it makes sense for them to have some more star power that, that helps their, from their business side of the equation. And it helps us also because the infrastructure is built in, the marketing is built in, and, and it, it's a win-win, which those are harder and harder to find. So that's been a really great, uh, a great move for us to have a combination of events like that. The last time I saw you, we participated in Newport, Rhode Island. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. The VIP, we've talked about it before on the show, but we even gave away a VIP. We had a, one of our listeners went to Newport Beach. Awesome. Uh, Cassia, I believe was her name. She, she had a blast with her family. Um, but uh, that's a good event. Those are good events. We love that. So yeah, events. the Oracle Challenger events have been really fantastic. Every, huh? And Marty Fish was saying that Tommy takes it way too seriously, <laughs> and that everybody's like trying to like. There's always says, if you can beat Tommy, yeah. that's a good win. There, there's always one. There's always someone who who's still, uh, you know, who, who's still gunning hard and still training hard, and it makes the rest of us work that much harder to stay with them. You know, I was going to ask you if you've gotten to the point where your golf is is better than your tennis. No, uh, it's still your tennis is still better no. than your golf. No, I mean that. I, I don't miss the sweet spot of the tennis racket very often. <laughs> I very rarely hit it uh, on a golf club. But I do, uh, I, love, I love golf. It's a great hobby. I'm not as good as Marty is. I'm, none of us in, in tennis are. But uh, He's I that good, huh? He's a plus three. I mean, I'm a three handicap. You're we're, three. We're a long ways away. That's far away. It's that's really far, far away, away, but that's still sick. You're three now? Yeah, I've been a three for a long time. For I can't, a long time. I can't get better, but I don't get worse, knock on wood. So. Dang. Right, moving into our second set. Second set. We call this. Who the won the first the set? 
Come on, man. You know the only winners here are our listeners. Okay. We call this the On the Court Report, where we talk about what's happening in tennis right now. Like you said, you just got back from Australia. You were on the ground. You saw it all up close and personal. We were saying during the men's final in particular, okay, that Rafa looked slow to the ball. Um, do you think that Rafa's going to have a hard time winning tournaments uh, moving forward? Did you see something out of him that was... Or you think that Novak yeah. was just abused him? Couple things. Um, Rafa's performance en route to the final was devastating. He was destroying yeah, players. He killed everybody. Um, so I, I think that Rafa, it, I, reading his comments and, and just watching his performance through the tournament, he has every reason to be positive about where his year is going. And, and that's the way he took it on the back end. He, he accepted the defeat, accepted that Novak played at a level he wasn't at but said, I feel, considering where I was at the end of last year, I'm very positive and very, as he should be, very bullish, especially once the clay gets rolling and he's gonna be a handful as usual. Have we ever seen anybody play to that level before? Joker? Novak? Yeah, what Joker did at Rafa was like, it's funny. So I mean, it, stunning. It's, it's funny. I, I think of matches like that where the you just can't believe what you're seeing. That one was one where you couldn't believe that it was that one-sided. I, I, a couple of years ago, when Roger beat Rafa at Indian Wells at, in the year in 2017, when he had beaten him in the finals of, of Australia from 3-1 down the fifth. And but Roger, that was a super high-level match. That it was. Australia and then they, played, then they played in, in Indian Wells, and Roger killed Rafa. He rolled him. Yeah, it was, it was one of those where you go, how in the world can anyone beat Roger when he's playing like this? And then yeah. you watch Novak at his peak, and you, and you go, geez, I don't think anyone has ever played tennis better than, than what we're seeing. So I was watching it's, it's, it's like four unforced errors and... Five in the semis, and he made nine in the finals. 14 unforced errors and six sets. Just bulletproof, flawless tennis. Have you ever hit with him? No. I've never hit with any of those guys. None of those guys. Never hit with Roger, never hit with Rafa, never hit with Andy. You never just said, come on, go get your, let's go, let's go hit. I, want, I mean, I I'm sure hit. they wouldn't say no if I asked, no, but I, I, I don't need them to get that much confidence. They already got enough. <laughs> yeah. Was there any other um, impressions of the tournament that uh, that were? Do you have any other interesting takeaways? Um, I thought that there was a lot of great five set matches that we like. That, it was early though. Like the competitive matches were in the men's side yeah. were early. We got a lot of great stuff early on that that was thrilling, and I thought that the the final set tiebreaker. You know, I think it proved its point, and it kept some people fresh for their next rounds. So yeah. that, that was good. And there wasn't a lot of hullabaloo about that, which there could have been. So that, that was beneficial. And look, I thought we saw three incredibly virtuistic performances in, in the semis and the finals of the men's. I mean, what Rafa and Novak did in the semis was jaw-dropping. And then what Novak did was equally jaw-dropping, if not more so, because of who he was playing in the final. I was disappointed they weren't competitive, but I was still in awe of what I was seeing. I don't know if you felt that way. I, yeah, I mean, you wanted to see like better matches on the, yeah. on the to, to finish the, to close the show. Yeah. But when you watched Novak yeah. um, do that to Rafa, you thought you were watching something special. Yeah. I, I, I never saw anyone hit a level like that. I it was amazing. Yeah, it, was, it was truly amazing, especially considering where he was a year earlier. He was on the eve of getting elbow surgery, so. What a dramatic turnaround he's made. And then on the women's side, I mean, I, there were, the storylines were incredible with, with Osaka looking to consolidate and be the first woman in two years 
to consolidate a major, you know, because we'd had eight in a row for, you know, winners. Do you know her? different? Uh, no. Does anyone? She's hard to know. She's it different, seems huh? Like. Yeah. She's a little, she's quirky, right? Yeah, in a great way. Yeah. She's, she's quirky. She's just, she's, she's her own person and she's super cool. You I'd like what, to know her. I woke up, you know, I woke up late in LA and saw, I, I, I learned she had, you know, choked. In that second set against Kvitova, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was watching her play that third set, and she's and I I was texting with people, and I'm like, man, she's so robotic. But then she addressed it. Mm-hmm. She said that she went into robot mode yeah. to close the show. Yeah, <laughs> I'd never heard that before. Yeah, she shut her emotions down, which is which is an incredible skill. Uh, that's that's next level if you can do that in a moment like that, and and realize that you need to do that too. That's, that's astonishing. She, she closed that show. She had a couple of matches where she did some pretty incredible mental things. She had a match uh, against Shea Suey, I think it was, early in the tournament when she was down yeah. set. She was down Setting a break. 4-1 yeah. and like points to go down 5-2 and she, she turned that one around on a dime. It she was, held it, it was together. A, it was amazing yeah. to see her turn it around and just flip the momentum because it sure looked like she was gone. She was getting sliced and diced. Yeah. And playing terrible. Yeah. Well, Shea Suey can do that to you. For sure. That's a very awkward style that she presents. But she was awesome. Kvitova is just a heartwarming story to see her back um, playing at that level again. She's super fit. And um, She's you know, she won that. a lot of fans there. She seems like a um, super athlete, too. Um, she is. She is, huh? Oh, yeah. She's your height or she's shorter than you? She's, she's probably just an inch short. I think yeah. she's six foot tall. I'm six one. Yeah, she's like, she seems like she's... Prime to go win Wimbledon. I would think she's right in there. Yes, assuming that. I mean, obviously, obviously, you never know um, with, with health. But do, do you learn any interesting things over there that we don't know? Anything about <laughs> like Curios and? So Curios came and did uh, two matches on television with Channel Nine that I was involved in. So he came and sat with me and Todd Woodbridge, and called two matches, including one of Federer's matches. And. I think the people in Australia that, that got a chance to listen to him, and he did one of them was on a Saturday afternoon. So I think it was is it one of the weekend afternoons. So that was a pretty good TV audience down there. And I think people got an insight into who, who he is and why he's liked in the locker room and why he's misunderstood because he was, he, you know, t- TV's a tough medium if you haven't done it before. So he was trying to find his feet in there. But when we'd ask him questions, he would have good answers and good insight into who he is and how he sees the game. And it was, I think that was a really smart move for him to expose a different side of his personality to the public. Have you had any words with him about his results? Did you, do you and Todd give him a talk up there? No, I don't know him well enough to do that. Um, it's not my role in that space. My role in that space is to simply make sure that he's a good listen for the viewer and to engage with him. Um, we all hope, and I, I mean, he, he's, like all kids, he's very tuned into what people are saying about him. So if I get asked or Johnny Mac or anyone gets asked about him, we know that he's going to be reading that. So we are talking to him through the media when we say what we say. And what I always say is it is my hope that he will engage and try and get the most out of his career if he's honest with himself, and I think he is. He knows he hasn't been doing that to this point. That's, those are just facts. And he may disagree with those facts, but if he asked me about them, I would certainly stand by them and say, you're not maximizing what you have. And if you do, great things will happen, but it's up to you. You're the boss. You're the CEO. But it's, I don't put myself in a position when, unless someone like you is asking me the question, yeah. 
I'm not out there on Twitter making those proclamations. You are not. That, is, that is a fact. Yeah. You are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I'd like to ask you about Danielle Collins. Sure. Do you know her? I don't. I know Danielle a little bit. You know, she comes from my area in Florida. She comes from Central Florida. She is a public parks girl out of St. Pete, which is the world that I grew up in. Um, you know, through Inside Out, we've supported a foundation that that's helped uh, with many, many other benefactors um, keep the lights on at, at this public facility, which she spent quite a bit of time at. As a which kid. facility is that? It's at Bartlett Park at St. Pete Tennis Center. And and the story is is that she was like playing doubles matches with like grown with six, men, with sixty year old women, yeah, just whatever it and, was, and like ta- like nagging people, like, just getting like, matches. Can I play? Can I play? Yeah, she's she's a she's been a real go getter her whole life. I love her story. I mean, the story of of her parents that are real, you know, real salt of the earth people. Her dad's a landscape artist. Her her mom is a is a teacher. You know, she, she's a striver. and She's the first in her family to, to graduate from college. I mean, there's so many things to look up to for Danielle. So, I mean, she's one that I'm naturally drawn to her storyline. Yeah. And, uh, and she's a fierce competitor. And have you man. spoken awesome. to her? A little bit, yeah. Little what bit. does she have to say well, first? I, pl- I actually played against her in a, uh, we, there was a, a charity event down in South Florida last year that our friend Jay Berger put together yeah. at the club that he's running now at Ibis. And Danielle played uh, a set of singles with Coco Goff. Um, Riley Opelka and JC Aragon played uh, a set of singles, and I played mixed doubles with Coco against Danielle and JC. Danielle and JC both went to, to UVA, so they had that natural connection. First point of the match, she nearly took my head off. She crossed <laughs> and, and hit a... And it, we're playing... It's, she you know, crossed. In front of, like, 200 club members. She crossed she and She crossed and nearly took my head off at the net. <laughs> and, it was, and it was awesome, you know? And, and she wasn't that apologetic about it, too. You know, she was still angry that she lost the set, I think, to, to Coco. So she was taking it out on the ball, which is fun. So I just love that about her, that she's... She, and she's, from what I've experienced with her, she and what people say, she's quite different off the court. She's very... She's lovely, outgoing, you know, smiling, engaging, smart personality. Obviously, a fierce competitor within within the lines, which I love. I saw her play it in like a ITA Masters event, and I was distracted by that college style she has of yeah. just the histrionics in between points. And I mean, I was surprised that. Well, that's on who the she tour, is. Man. I mean, she's she's fierce, and she's she is not. Uh, I first noticed it when when she was playing in Miami last year, and she beat. A very, I think she'd be Venus. I want to say, and like she was very, like she was not bowing down to anyone. She was bringing it. She brings it, man. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. She brings it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm kind of, I'm kind of bullish on her. I just hope that you know, I, there's a sense of decorum that I. I like about the sport. I just so you weren't much something. of a Connors fan. Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I'm not she brings say a lot that. of Jimmy's swagger and attitude to the court. Is you that kind of what you see? Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. she's taken no prisoners out there. No prisoners. My personal view is she's not crossing the line. It's not like she's yelling at her opponent and calling them names or anything like that. But she's certainly going to, to stick her fist up in the air and yell, come on, if the time is there. And, and, but that, and that's a, I feel like it, it, that's, that comes from the college style, the college environment, the college experience. Probably. Would you, do you agree a little bit? I mean, bit? I don't know because I didn't see her play in college, but yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that... The, that that aspect of her encore demeanor was emboldened there, yeah. I guess. But some people are just like that naturally. No doubt. Um, it, I mean, it was just an awesome story to see her make that run. 
she had never won a match in a slam. No, it was great. And she went to the summer. <laughs> it was amazing to watch her do that. I can't say that I was that surprised that she had that kind of result, though, because she's fearless and because she is, she's first strike, she's aggressive, and those conditions reward that down there. But she was a great story to follow for us. Francis Tiafo was an amazing story for us to follow, to see him step up and play some big tennis against some big-time players and, and, uh, and have some of the great all, you know, the all-time great post-match celebrations. Francis Tiafo <laughs> came with it on those courts. Poor yeah. people, he really, he really um, made his fame down there for years to come, I think. Yeah, he made a lot of fans. Um, let's move into our third set. Okay. This is the portion of our show where we discuss your career. Okay, um, let's keep this the shortest. <laughs> this will be like a 6-2 set. I wanted to ask you really, if you kind of close your eyes and go back to 91, 92, 93, what were those years like for you? I mean, you won a lot of tennis batches. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah, they, they, they were my most successful patch of years at the slam level and, and at tour level. And uh, that coincided with when I joined forces with three guys that, that changed a lot of my life. Pat Echeberry in strength and conditioning, and Brad Stein and Jose Higueras in coaching. And we've talked about all them. First of all, Pat Echeberry is uh, the long time, he's, I, I imagine he's probably still there, Saddlebrook Resort trainer. He's not there anymore, but, oh, he's he, not. but he was he, for quite some time. In Pat Etcheberry, yeah. for the longest time, was at Saddlebrook Resort. Yeah. Um, uh, Brad Stein is currently Kevin Anderson's coach. We talked about him with Brad Gilbert. And then um, Jose Higueras was a you know, top five guy in the world who uh, was a long-time high-player performance coach for the USTA, correct? Yeah, yeah, he was in charge of coaching for the USTA. He spent some time coaching Roger Federer. He coached um, Michael Chang. He got you to me. one. You guys got, went to one. Yeah, yeah, he was on, uh, he was on uh, the coach. He was the coach of Michael Chang when Michael won the French Open. He coached me to, to my titles. Um, so no, when that, that, was a great, would... that was a great team. That was a great time in my life. Uh, I had been on tour three years, and I was ranked somewhere around, I was ranked about 24, 25 when I started working with those three guys all at the same time. Uh, that was a new team, you know, to borrow the current vernacular that I started working with at that time, at the end of 1990 in the offseason. And the results came quickly, and, and those years, you know, it really propelled me to a different place in my life. I mean, you were lights out, man. Um... And in 90, I think you beat Andre at, at the French, and then you got to the fourth round, and then it was the following year you were lights out. Yeah, 89, I beat Andre at the French. Okay. I think 90, I think actually he beat me at the French, and then 91, I beat him in, in the finals of the French. Right, the famous so, final. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it, it happened pretty quickly for me. From 90, end of 90, to, the, to kind of this, you know, the French Open of 91, that was a quick move into the top 10. To one. I was number one uh, in February of 92 is when I got to number one for the first time. So it was a quick turn, yeah. Um, but also, too, you, you, like, who got you, like, because I remember even when I met you later than that. We, 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 I, I met you in 1994, I think. But uh, I think you were hovering around the top 20, top 30, trying to get back in. Um, but... You had a you had you you said you guys all say that you stayed at a different hotel than the player hotel. You mm-hmm. you were not out there making a lot of friends. I mean, you were playing it a real serious 
style. Like mm. I feel like now we don't see as much of that. We see these guys all kind of seem like seem like they're almost like business partners. And you, Pete and Andre and Chang, you guys all had a different swagger. And you had <laughs> you think? I think so. Well, you have a different perspective on it too. You were, I mean, you were there. You were on the inside, but you know, you were also out, outside the players. But I'm saying you had your, you stayed in a different hotel. Yeah, you, sure. I liked it quiet, just like I like in my life now. I like it quiet unless it's time to be in the mix. I felt like we talked once and you were like, man, you know, I don't think any of us could be that friendly until we all got like a certain level of success. Well, I don't know that I don't know that it, that we were unfriendly, but I think that we were we were very competitive people. Obviously, to, to do what we did, you had to be, and especially in an individual sport. And uh, I think that once everyone got to a a comfortable level in their career, it was a lot easier to let your guards down. I think you know we were strivers, and we were really young doing it. You know, the, the years that we became successful businesses were very, very young for people to, to process. Yeah, and you're there's 22. A, there's a lot to process. You're 22. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, I won my first major at 20. Michael won his first major at 17. Pete was 19 when he won his first major. Andre was 21 or 22 when he won Wimbledon for the first time, but he'd been a superstar since he was 16, 17. So there was a lot for us to process. It was a wonderful, amazing um, scary, confusing time, and all of those emotions, you couple those in with everything being very public, because your wins and losses are in the papers back then, not in the internet. Right. Uh, thankfully, there was no social media, there were no you know, iPhone cameras everywhere, so you do have some level of privacy, but but you know your your successes and failures were were public news and and that is a lot for anyone at any point in their life but especially for young people to do but, but also too you you had a lot of different interests in your life people caught little glimpses of it you know you spoke french at the at the you know when you won the french open you pulled a book out you you know you had some different things in your life i remember one time i spoke with uh stefano capriati uh and he said, man, you don't understand. In order to be number one in the world, you can't have anything in your life except for tennis. You can't have anything. You can't go to movies. You can't go to concerts. You can't, you have to, it has to be everything. Do you think that intense? No, I, to- I don't think, I don't think that a silo focus is the connective tissue between the people that are number one for a long time. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I think if you look at, uh, I mean, Federer carries the crown easier than anyone has ever held it at the top. I mean, Martina and Chris were are incredible champions, and they had a, they had a lot of things that they were dealing with, a lot of issues that they were dealing with, a lot of leadership on the WTA tour that they were involved in. And we've seen these, this current crop of the big four, um, especially the big three. They've been incredibly politically involved. So I don't. Don't think that that is the thing that would, if I was less interested in other things, I don't think that would have prevented Pete Sampras from being number one in the world in my time. I just, you know, Pete was just better than I was. That that was eventually going to reveal itself, and it it, did. That's the thing, too, is like looking back at everything, you know, you, first of all, you played Pete 20 times. You know, you didn't play anyone else 20 times. If you look at it, it's almost like he was like, it's like Barkley to Jordan, Mm. that you probably, he he got in the way of some results. Yeah, sure he did. Ten results that like. Sure, he, of course he did. Yeah. Everyone has somebody or something that's going to be, you know, that that you have to push through if you want to 
get something. And Pete, he was he was the stopper for most of us in in that era. Yeah, he had a winning record against all of his major uh, compatriot compatriots at that point or peers. And um, he was tough, and he, he still is. If I have to face him in senior tennis, which thankfully I don't too much anymore, he's yeah, still Pete stopped. <laughs> yeah, he's still tough. Pete gave it up, though. His, his serve, still brutal. I still don't know where it's going. Still. Yeah, no idea. Still. Still have to guess. Um, I remember hearing stories of a dead arm. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that happened were- later in my career. You know, I had a rankings dip in 94, didn't play as well. And then my ranking came back up in 95. I had a good year, won five tournaments. And I started to experience some injury issues in the, the latter half of the 90s with my arm as the game, as they started to try and slow the game down, they made the balls bigger and, and heavier, and, and I didn't make adjustments with my equipment, and I eventually had to. And eventually playing had to, with that St. Vincent. Playing with the St. Vincent pro staff, yeah. But, you know, 65-pound Gosen nylon 16-gauge. So it was, it was a lot on an arm for a heavy ball. So I had to change. I had to figure it all out, but... Look, everyone has things that come up in their career and they have to deal with them yeah. and they do the best they can. I mean, I, I look back on my career as a whole and I know that I did everything with the information that I had in hand. I did everything right. I tried hard to solve problems and be the best that I could be. And I sleep very well at night. And it could have easily been a better career, I'm sure. It could have easily been a worse career, I'm sure. But it's my career and I own it and I love it. How do you think the Nike commercials impacted the tour and impacted your career. I always thought that you kind of gave your secret away. <laughs> like everyone was like, whoa, are you, really, are you really running with a parachute on your back? Like, no, I don't think anyone was really doing that. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't think that that information was necessarily a golden goose that people didn't know. Pete Sampras was working with Pat Etcheberry. Right, right, right. Pete, Pete was doing the same stuff that I was doing. So yeah. it wasn't, Andre was the first guy in tennis to work with Pat Etcheberry. So what we exposed in some of those Nike commercials, the documentary-style commercials, was my day-to-day routine. Some of it was goofy and fun, and some of it was serious. And what was, what was funny was that Andre had a really interesting reaction to that, because he and Perry, once they saw those commercials, they decided they were going to go the other way. So when Nike did the documentary commercials on Andre, God love him, he decides, like, we're going to go eat donuts, we're going to go drive our... You know, he, he did everything but... Work out. What would have been working out, you know? And, you know, obviously, eventually, Andre, his career was an amazing journey, and he turned into the most professional player on tour in the second half of his career. So, but it was funny at that time that he was just, he is that guy who, you know, likes to stick the needle in when he can, you know? It's what we love about him. Did you guys meet at Boletari's? Is that, I mean, is that a... No, I met him in, uh, well, I don't know if we met, but I first saw him at, like, 12 and under nationals. 12 and unders. Yeah, I knew I knew him, and I don't know if he knew me, but I knew him before we were running. And when did you and did, and did you see Pete as juniors too, or was yeah, he was in those tournaments and Michael two-handed backhand, two-handed backhand, Pete, great two-handed backhand, much better than his forehand. Think about that. He gave up his best <laughs> shot as a junior. Worked out okay for him. Moving into our fourth set. This is our 10-ball scramble. All right. Um, This is not a deep dive. It's word association. I say it, and you just say, you just answer the question. Okay. Last concert you've seen. Um, I was talking to my wife about this the other day because I haven't seen one in a while. I think it was the U2's last tour at the Garden. Jeez, Jim. 
That's very on gym like. I'm. We have kids, man. I don't have time to go to shows. Wasn't like some Barney. You didn't go to well, some Barney concert. I, no, no. I, I, I can tell you, I'd be at the Matt Nathanson concert in Orlando tonight if I wasn't here playing this one because he's playing at a cool venue, and I'd go see that. But I can't be there. Last book you've read. Last book I've read is uh, Ronan Farrow's book uh, about the State Department. It's about his experiences in the State Department. Interesting. Yeah. Last golf score posted. Seventy-eight. Where? Uh, Lake Nona in Orlando. Shout out to Lake Nona. <laughs> Shout out to my home. Um, last movie. Last movie uh, I saw. Um, oh, we just watched it the other night. Um, it's not the wife. It's a. It's kind of a like a sister movie to that. Um, who's the actress who plays it? Glenn Close. Glenn Close is in The Wife. I didn't see that one, but this is a movie um, where the woman she she's married to um, Scott. You got to know this. She's married to. They're in Paris. He's a writer, and she's ghost writing for him, and she she's getting none of the credit for it. And she's doing, it's Colette is, is, I don't know if that's the name of the movie, but anyway, the last movie that I know the name of that I saw is Roma, Man. which is amazing, dark, really head-scratchingly dark. Do you watch Have it you on seen Netflix it? or do you watch it on Netflix. the screen? Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. I haven't been into a movie theater in over a year. Can't do that. Last sports event you watched? Australian Open men's final. You didn't watch the Super Bowl? Oh, you mean... Like watch on TV? I don't know yeah, I watched the first half of the Super Bowl. First half. Yeah. Um, your favorite tournament? Probably Indian Wells. Not the French. I love the French, but it's not your favorite. I mean, my favorite tournament right now to go to and be at. But I don't, you probably, can, you can interpret any way you want. Yeah, Indian Wells, I think. Indian Wells. Yeah. Um, your favorite court? My favorite court in the world is the Bull Ring at Roland Garros, which is going away, I think, after this year. Your best win. Who my best win. Uh, Johan Creek, first round, Stratton Mountain, 1988, 7-6 in the third. He double faulted on match point. That put me in the top 100. First Dang. time. 7-6 in the third. He double faulted, on, and I responded like Daniel Collins would <laughs> pump my fist. Worst loss. Worst loss. Oh, gosh. Worst loss in recent memory for me. Uh, is Davis Cup in Australia in Brisbane in 2017 when, when we lost, Jack Sock lost to Jordan Thompson and he cramped up at, like early in the fourth set and I realized that we were toast. That was a bad feeling. Gut punch. That was a bad feeling. The Yarra River. It's 18th most polluted river in the world and yet I dove in it twice. And is it a fact you got sick? No, I didn't That's get That's not that. a fact. It's, not, it's a good story, but it's not, not true. <laughs> it's not. No. All right, this is it. This is our fifth and final set. First of all, thanks for taking all this time. Um, this is what we call the king of the court. Okay. If you were the king of the tennis and you could change it in one scepter swing... What would you change and, and how would you do it? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd sweep the calendar and start new. Um, and I know this, none of this is possible or plausible. I'm just saying if in a perfect yeah, world, yeah, if I had all the power, um, I, would, I would start the season um, where the Australian Open was probably at the end of February. So you had six weeks of play to get ready for the first major of the year. 
there would be more that there would be more sense to the to the calendar. The last tournament of the year would be the second week of October, so there would be a two and a half month off season for fans, for players, for everyone to catch their breath, and for tennis to be missed by the fans. Um, Davis Cup and Fed Cup would be a combined two-week event that would close off the end of the year, It'd be like our last major of the year, and it would be um, separate. Men and women gender would play separately, but at the same, you know, in the same nation, building towards a final, you know, potentially like the World Cup of soccer or football, depending on your vernacular. Uh, I would have more big combined events because those are our best presentation of our sport. Um, as we've seen, those are the most successful, the most watched, and the most interesting events. It's amazing you can't get that done. Well, it's hard because people own real estate. That's what people, That's what you have to is. understand. When you own a tournament, you own real estate on the calendar, and you need a huge pot of money to buy out these tournaments to clear the space on the calendar to do what you need to do. And let's just take, take an example of these, these Masters 1000 events, the nine of them, plus, you know, plus Monte Carlo, there are 10 of them. Those things are would trade an incredible premium. If you wanted to go buy one right now, you know, that, that's over $100 million to buy one of those events. And there are plenty of people around the world who would do it in a heartbeat to buy them. So how do you go out and get a big enough pot of money to clear the calendar? That's why being king is, a, is a, you know, an exercise in futility. But you know, if you wanted to make tennis its very best presentation, you would do that. You would obviously get rid of all the different heads and you would put everything under one commissioner so you had one leader who was the visionary who could also sell off the, the sponsorships and media under one package. So you would, you would get rid of a lot of the mom and pops that helped build the sport. So that's the painful part is you'd have to get rid. You'd have to get rid of the people who built this sport and replace them with people like Larry Ellison who have you know, a, immense amounts of money. And for them, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful asset for them to own, but they don't need it to make a living like most people who own tennis tournaments traditionally did. They either own the tournaments as families or they had charities and they, they did it as a, as a civic good. So for me, that's, that's the one thing where if we were going to make tennis a bigger, um, more powerful entity that could generate more interest and more revenue, which can then be dispersed to grow the sport globally, you'd have to kind of sweep the table and start from scratch with your four pillars as your, you know, your anchor tenants, and then fill in the rest for a sensible schedule that was sustainable for players and for fans and for all of our partners. I mean, does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, you actually echoed a lot of what Nicole Gibbs shared, where she felt like you know the sport would be so much better if they got everybody together. And you would need billions of dollars to to do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so again, she was. It was the dream, you know. Sure. Um, my man, I can't thank you enough. We'll see you down the road. Um, I imagine your next broadcasting gig will be at Indian Wells. Is that right? my favorite tournament? Can't wait. James Spencer Courier, former world number one, two-time French Open, Australian Open winner. You are released. Thank you, sir. I'm released in my own locker room. So, yeah, yeah I, guess we're, I guess we're released. We're in his locker room. <laughs> Huge thank you to Jim Courier. Thank you to the folks at the ATP and the New York Open. And thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, 
Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Under Review Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We will be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. Released.